What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the Prime Minister has given more details about his levelling up agenda by unveiling plans to modernise Britain's high streets and move government officials and civil servants out of London. Some 57 regions in England will benefit from an £830 million fund to transform town centres. More than 3,000 civil service jobs across the Home Office and Business Department will be relocated to Edinburgh, Belfast, and Stoke-on-Trent by 2025. Well, the plans also include a £10 million package to boost teaching and another £18 million to help vulnerable young people from the most disadvantaged areas. Now, all this comes amid concerns that the highly transmissible India variant could hurt plans to reopen the economy. But Boris Johnson says there's nothing conclusive in the current data that would delay the lifting of restrictions on June the 21st. Of course, he has come in for a lot of criticism about whether he is following the science or not, as he promised to do in terms of the reopening. Well, one part of the UK that appears to have ridden out the pandemic while retaining a great deal of public support in the administration is Wales. Now, that was apparent in the regional and local elections earlier this month. Overall, Labour had a pretty bad time, but in Wales, it increased its hold in the Senate, and Mark Drakeford, the First Minister, got a big boost. Well, I'm very pleased to say that Mark Drakeford joins us now. He is, of course, First Minister of Wales and Welsh Labour leader. Mark, welcome to the programme, and thank you for being with us. Um, let me just ask you, because there is going to be a lot of looking back going on, of course, in the way in which the pandemic was handled, but in your handling of it, what are you most proud of and what is your biggest regret? Well, I think the thing that uh, we will be most proud of is that despite the many difficulties that we faced during that extraordinary 15 months, that we managed to keep the bulk of Welsh opinion with us. We've taken a careful, cautious, step-by-step approach to dealing with the virus trying to do everything that we need to do, even when, from time to time, uh, that hasn't always been popular. But in the round, I think people in Wales have appreciated the efforts that have been made. And when I was out on the doorstep, as you said, you know, over recent weeks, the mantra on the doorstep was very often people saying, we're pleased we've lived in Wales over the period of the pandemic. We feel we've been kept safe. And I think if we were proud of anything, we'd be proud of the way that we've handled it like that. In terms of regret, I think what I think is that had we known then what we know now, then there would have been things we would have done differently. But that's because our understanding of the pandemic, our knowledge of the virus, the way it behaves, the way new variants happen and so on, we've all been learning as we go along. 
And there are things we do know now that we certainly didn't know back in March of last year. Well, I mean, 14, 15 months into it, we have learned a great deal. What exactly might you have done differently with extra knowledge? Uh, well, I think we would have moved quicker in those very early days had we understood just how fast uh, this virus was going to move from person to person, if we'd understood some of the ways in which would it would exploit vulnerabilities in the population, people with pre-existing health conditions, those communities where people live, you know, in densely uh, packed urban environments, I think we would have taken action uh, faster than we did. But that is, as I say, to use the knowledge that we have now uh, compared to the, the more limited understanding we all had at the very start of the pandemic. Well, that, 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 of course, is, is looking back. Let's, let's project forward because, uh, obviously, at the moment, it's a way of managing coming out of, of all this that is equally important. Still, there are threats out there, as we know. Uh, what about uh, travel? Because that's a very vexed issue uh, here in England, but also, of course, uh, one in Wales. Should people in Wales stay home this summer? I mean, flights are open. Uh, I mean, the Westminster government does seem to be slightly uh, pushing in two directions on this. Do you favour uh, this kind of traffic light system where perhaps some foreign travel is possible? We'll adopt the same traffic light uh, system, Roger. In, in some ways, it's, a, it's a, just a pragmatic matter for me. Uh, once you have travel around the United Kingdom, then people in Wales will be able to go abroad from airports anywhere in the UK. So... I'm not in favour of a sort of King Canute approach to politics where we issue instructions that we know we can't uh, make sure that would uh, be enforced. Mm. But our advice to people in Wales has been for many, many weeks, not just in the last week, in many, many weeks has been, surely this is the year to take your holiday at home. If ever there was a year not to go abroad and run the risks of re-importing the virus, back into the United Kingdom and into Wales, and with what we now know about new variants that are developing elsewhere, if there ever was a year to enjoy everything that Wales has to offer, surely this is it. Uh, Okay. well, if you're asking people in Wales uh, perhaps to stay home and enjoy the coasts and inlands uh, of Wales, would you be welcoming people from across the UK for holidays in Wales this summer for staycationing? Or should they also stay closer to their homes? No, uh, we're very pleased indeed to welcome friends, family, visitors, people back to Wales now that the virus is uh, suppressed across the whole of the United Kingdom. So there are no inhibitions at all on people from elsewhere coming to enjoy what Wales has to offer. We look forward uh, very much to welcoming them. Last year, when that was uh, possible at the height of the summer, our experience was that visitors to Wales were very careful, very respectful, wanting to play their part in keeping themselves and others safe. And uh, I'm sure our visitors will come in the same spirit this year. First Minister, there is obviously concern still about uh, the India variant, for example, across the UK, I'm sure in Wales too. And I know you have paused some further easing of measures. So can you just take us through what is on hold, what people can do, where we are in that? Yes, so we we have moved to what we call Alert Level 2 in Wales. And uh, at Alert Level 2, there is a very significant reopening 
of the economy and society, the, the whole of tourism accommodation, being able to reopen hospitality, reopening indoors, museums, galleries, leisure centres. You know, there's, there's a very significant reopening of Welsh society. The two things we paused on, which would have gone beyond our level two measures, was we were thinking of allowing the recommencement of events in Wales, small-scale events, you know, food festivals in towns and villages, that sort of thing. Uh, We paused that, and we were thinking of a more liberal regime of the way that people would be able to meet in Wales. We have a regime in which an extended household from two households up to six people can uh, meet in that way. We might have gone a bit further than that, but until we are more confident that the Indian variant isn't going to pose new risks, and particularly that it's not Mm. going to drive more people into hospital because it causes them to become more significantly ill, we'll just wait to see. And when the evidence is clear and we get the advice from our chief medical officer and scientist, then we will make a decision and hopefully be able to move ahead. Um, It doesn't sound like there's a great deal of trust then between um, Wales and the central government in in Westminster. How are communications between your administration and Boris Johnson's government? I mean, you've already said that you don't really agree, as far as I understand, with the traffic light system for, for holidays abroad. How are communications now between Wales and Westminster? Well, if I could answer that, two points there, really. Um, you are right. We have taken a different view uh, on how we come out of a pandemic. Uh, ours is a more precautionary approach. Uh, we think it's better to take things more slowly. We wouldn't have opened up international travel in the way that the UK government uh, has done. So there is there is undoubtedly a difference of approach between us. In terms of communication between administrations, since Christmas, We have had a weekly meeting of the first ministers of the three devolved governments, and we meet with Michael Gove, the minister in charge of the cabinet office. And that has been an improvement on what we had before, where contact was far more sporadic, far more ad hoc. The fact that we have a weekly opportunity to share information, raise concerns, it's not perfect. Uh, And, you know, once again, it is not part of the formal machinery of government in the United Kingdom, but it is a lot better than we had before. First Minister, may I ask you briefly what your views are about uh, the leader of your party nationally, Keir Starmer? I mean, a lot of people point you to the different outcomes in the elections in Wales and the rest of the country. Does Keir Starmer need to change direction to get Labour back in a stronger position? Well, I think Keir Starmer has the most difficult uh, job in UK politics as leader of the opposition, and that that difficult position has been much Uh, exacerbated by the first year of his leadership coinciding with the pandemic, where, when I think quite rightly, uh, he has put the Labour Party in the position of supporting many of the actions that the government has taken to deal with the pandemic. So uh, I don't for a minute underestimate the challenge uh, of his position. Uh, I think the results in England are more nuanced than many uh, reports uh, suggest. Where Labour has been in power in uh, in England, 
in London, in Manchester, in other of the yeah. mayoral areas, where we're able to show what we can do, then we've had very significant support wow. from people. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Well, the government says it's up to the public to decide whether to go on holiday. But people shouldn't be in amber or red list countries, apparently. Boris Johnson says you should only travel to one of those nations on business or in an emergency. The Education Minister, Gillian Keegan, says they trust us to do the right thing. It's not in legislation. This is guidance from the government. You know, we haven't uh, we haven't legislated to ban people from going on holiday. This has been about uh, allowing the great British public being uh, sensible and looking at the guidance that we put in place and taking their own decisions. Well, the shadow health minister John Ashworth thinks we're getting mixed messages. House and House Commons on Monday, and Matt Hancock was asked explicitly about this: Should people go on holiday if the country's on the amber list? He said no. No, they shouldn't. And another Tory MP jumped up and said, well, you've effectively made the amber list the red list. So people just want clear guidance. Meanwhile, the EU is today expected to confirm UK tourists can travel without quarantine if they've been vaccinated. Well, meanwhile, on post-Brexit trade, Boris Johnson is pushing to get a deal with Australia over the line, despite warnings from farmers that cheaper imports could put them out of business. According to The Times, the PM is preparing to offer Australia tariff-free access to UK foods and the market here for UK foods as talks continue within the government itself over the deal. Meanwhile, the Financial Times is reporting on what they say is the Tories' next fear, that the Green Party are becoming the new Lib Dems and making gains across southern England. The Green co-chair, Jonathan Bartley, tells the paper the Greens actually have a lot in common with moderate Conservatives. We believe in small business and strong local economies. Greens are passionate about their communities and localism, where the Tories have been very patchy, he says. Mm. And lastly, the London Mayor Sadiq Khan is on a visit to Yorkshire today, where we understand he's seeking to, quote, build bridges between London and the rest of the country and support the national levelling up agenda. Khan is on the front page of the Yorkshire Post, pledging to heal the North-South rift. Roger, we are both perhaps wondering what Khan perhaps is angling to run for I next. I can't think what you're suggesting <laughs> there at all, Caroline. I mean, he's clearly a man fully focused on his job, which, of course, he's just recently retained as uh, Mayor of London. But um, who knows? Well, we just uh, mentioned uh, that post-Brexit trade deal with Australia, the warnings from farmers here in the UK. Uh, That's one post-Brexit trade deal. But does Britain overall have a sufficient strategy for the future direction of the country, given the rise and the global dominance now of China? Joining us uh, now is Bloomberg opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Therese, you have a fantastic piece sort of analysing this very point on the Bloomberg terminal. Um, Talking about um, how the civil service really and government I suppose overall need uh, long-term thinking, in-depth thinking about how to position so-called global Britain. Yeah, well, the heavy lifting in that analysis was done by Lord Peter Ricketts, who, of course, has been at the center of British foreign policy for 
some four decades. He was, uh, I think, permanent representative to NATO, the highest-ranking civil servant in the Foreign Office, ambassador to France, and so on. And he's just written a book called Hard Choices, What Britain Does Next. And uh, having read the book, I, I reached out to speak to him about some of those hard choices. And what you know, really comes through is the idea, well, two, two things. One is that for the, in the post-war era, Britain's foreign policy has rested on these two immutable pillars. And one of them was Britain's EU membership, which amplified its voice in world affairs, gave it a, a seat at the table, the most important trade bloc. And obviously that's been knocked away. And the other, um, which has undergone maybe subtler changes, but no less uh, inconsequential, or, or no less consequential, I should say, is Britain's relationship with the U.S., which was um, often uh, founded on America's internationalism, its mm. uh, willingness to intervene abroad to advance its interests, and that's changed radically. And you know, he he, he talks about um, the intervention in Libya as being a sort of turning point uh, when the U.S. administration said, "Well, we'll take a back seat on this and let the Europeans uh, let the Europeans lead it." And that's left Britain with a lot of choices about how it projects its influence and how it balances the need to advance its trade interests. And this is where we talk quite a bit about China, um, where the U.K. you know has obviously significant trade interests, but also uh, a, a clash with its values on human rights. We've seen it in Hong Kong, also with the Uyghurs. And, and you know, that is really where a lot of these decisions come to a head. Um, and so we had a, a discussion about that, about the future of NATO, and really about how you go about in in the modern world where uh you know all politics is, seems to be crisis management played mm. out in real time over digital media how do you go about doing strategy these days and one of the most interesting things i thought in in the piece where you talked about britain's reputation because that obviously is key to you know the extent to which we can punch above our weight as they traditionally say that we can and leaving the eu and also perhaps the the sheer farce of a lot of the uh, of the brexit process do you get the sense that, that has damaged us, or in, in Lord Ricketts' view, does he think that that our we we actually punch with less weight now? Yeah, I mean, his his view is that the the Brexit process really did damage Britain's reputation in the world. I mean, it damaged its reputation with Europe, first of all. We you know we've we've talked about that many times uh, because it took so long for the UK to decide what it wanted. Uh, it then uh, it then went for this very hard Brexit, which completely ripped up the UK EU relationship and has put it on very adversarial terms. But more broadly, it was the prorogation of Parliament. Uh, last year it was the the threat to um breach international law all of those things had an impact and you know how enduring that impact is and you know whether it it um has knock-on effects for britain at say the g7 or the cop 26 i think really depends on what boris johnson does now britain will be judged as lord rickett says by its actions uh now and you know a lot of the um Brexit sort of stage of of, uh, of Boris Johnson's leadership was, was not so much about actions but about rhetoric, and it was playing to a domestic audience. 
and you know how Britain positions itself in the world is is now you know has is is far beyond the rhetoric and is now about exactly you know what the country does, mm-hmm. how it follows through on on its commitments and projects its values. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was fascinating um, that Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, um, that you were speaking to, that he was essentially buckling up for a decade of very antagonistic um, uh, relations between the UK and the EU. And I'm not sure that that is something that actually has really um, sort of sunk in beyond certain circles within the UK. Um, but yes. Yeah, I was just going to say quickly, <laughs> I, you know, I remember yeah. speaking with David Davis, um, I think it was uh, in the early part of the year, who said he expected things to be rough for a couple of years yes. and then settle down. So very different views on how long this is going to play out. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, what about the UK-Australia deal then? I mean, you know, it, it's great for the Commonwealth it, and so on, but you look at the numbers, absolutely minute. Why is Boris Johnson so keen to get this trade deal with Australia done? Oh, it is fascinating. I think this is the first real test of what Brexit means um, in in terms of global Britain, which is this mantra that we've been hearing for some time for the Brexiters. And it pits two, you know, two types of conservatives or new conservatives against each other in a way. You know, there's one that say, wait, you know, we need to protect the farmers, and if we've taken back control, uh, that needs to be reflected in how we treat domestic industries such as farming. And the other group says, look, the whole point of leaving the EU um, was to advance our trading interests. We've now, we're now outside the common agricultural policy. We can uh, import uh, goods that offer our consumers more choice at, at you know, better prices. And uh, yes, the, the ultimate value of this is quite low. And, you know, the reality is that any agreement is going to be phased in over a long period of time. And they may well agree uh, to keep some kind of a, a quota system in place, which limits the import of Australian beef, which is what they're, they're really afraid of. But it, it does signal a lot about what Boris Johnson really thinks on Brexit. We know that he's, you know, he's been capable of, of uh, you know, saying opposite things to different audiences, but here he's really got to nail his colors to the wall yeah. and say, you know, how, what, where does he come down on free trade? It's also important because it's a bellwether for other trade agreements, for the U.S., for New Zealand. So it sets an example. And, I, and I, that's exactly the point that you were making there about him facing both ways, because a lot of the of Brexit pretty clearly was sold to everybody as, uh, yes, you all shall have prizes, and clearly some won't. Uh, that is the central dilemma in a way. People are not all going to come out better as a result of this. Just ask the fishermen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so... Uh, in terms of, I suppose, the other pressures that Boris Johnson is under, I mean, it's also around whether to impose more lockdowns. Um, I mean, we were talking, have been talking a lot this week about the surge in the Indian variant in Bolton, this warning that there could even be civil unrest, the Conservative leader in Bolton. What are the chances, briefly, that we might have to see more lockdowns? What does that mean for Boris Johnson? I think what Johnson is hoping to do is, uh, is put the burden on people to behave in a way that limits the transmission of the virus and, you know, sort of shift this from, um, you know, strict government policy to, uh, you know, to, to people acting prudently. But he's obviously said if 
um, transmission rates go up and reflect hospital, you know, increase in hospitalizations, then more restrictions will have to come into play. I think the easier, you know, it would be easier for him to impose that on travel in a way, yeah. in, you know, keeping the list of yeah. red countries yeah. than it would be to start reinstating regional lockdowns. Um, and he's going to be very reluctant to do that. Yeah. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.